Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Eric Collette is the CEO and founder of A Mind for All Seasons, which he began in May of 2016. Eric was witnessing a need for family and professional caregivers to receive support, coaching, education, and guidance in the latest dementia care techniques. After studying interpersonal communication and psychology, Eric began a career in assisted living in the year 2000, first as a program director, then as an administrator. He took over as the executive director of a struggling memory care community in 2009 and developed innovative techniques that leverage the best of social science and dementia research, practical experience, and industry training to provide a better experience for the residents of the community. As the community's reputation expanded, requests began coming in for Eric to train families and industry professionals, and after seven years, he took a leap of faith and founded A Mind of For All Seasons as a solo consultant. His company strives to treat symptoms like alarm bells and works to identify what is causing the alarm to sound at the actual root cause instead of simply trying to silence it. Eric Collette, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Oh, thanks so much, Casey. I'm super excited to be with you and your audience today. Super excited to host you. Uh, as soon as I heard about you from the person I heard about you from, there was no question that I was going to invite you to be on that sh- on this show. And that person is Hal Kramer. When I came across mm. his story about a year ago, I was blown away. Pretty much the last thing I would ever want to learn about or talk about is assisted care facilities based on what I'd seen kind of like growing up, not necessarily like the happiest places to be. But I hear about this dude dude in Phoenix who's like helping people in his assisted care facilities like get better and leave and I see them on social media and they're dancing and having barbecues and like amazing and they're taking an unconventional approach I, I Hal is a wonderful person so cool that you got to meet with him and when he said that we needed to host you dude we were hosting you <laughs> awesome yeah Hal's a great guy I love working with him that's amazing. Yeah, I met him in um, August in San Diego. You're in Boise, Idaho. So I think what you guys need to do, rather than you going all the way down there, him going all the way up there, you guys can just go to my city, Salt Lake, right in the middle, and then all three of us can hang out. I think that'd be fun. And hey, as a graduate of the University of Utah, I love Salt Lake City. Spent uh, a lot of time there. I started my career there in Salt Lake, as a matter of fact. That's amazing. Very cool. Yeah, I just went to the football game this weekend, and it was quite the blowout of Arizona State, so that was fun. Way better than the previous week, right? (laughs) We're not going to talk about the previous (laughs) week. (laughs) Okay, good good call. I'm with you. Exactly. Oh, man. Okay, so (laughs) this is super unique, and I really, really appreciate this opportunity because you and I are going to speak today, and tomorrow we're going to speak again in an episode that's going to release just right after this. It's going to be more of a case study. So we are going to include Hal, and we are going to include one of his residents who works specifically with your program. I have not met her or really talked to her besides the few emails that you and I and and Hal have exchanged, um, but that's going to be absolutely wonderful. So I think the two of these episodes can be a real powerhouse to really help people out there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for you to meet Melissa and get to know more about her story. It's phenomenal. Uh, Hal told it to us a little bit on the last episode. So yeah, to hear it from her in her own words would be absolutely amazing. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, so very Great. cool. So how did you get into all of this to begin with? It was actually kind of an accident, to be honest with you. Um, I grew up here in Boise, and I was originally going to be a reconstruct—excuse me—a reconstructive plastic surgeon, um, because 
that's what my next door neighbor did. And I used to go down to his office and look at slides of all the work that he did to repair people after they had serious snowmobile accidents and, and car wrecks and things. And I thought, man, this is like the best of art and science. So I thought that's what I wanted to do. Had an academic scholarship to the University of Utah and was trying to do pre-med and be a piano and saxophone performance major so I could stand out from all the biology majors, which ought to tell you that I'm not that bright because that's a ridiculous load to try to carry. And I basically had zero social life. I wasn't very happy. And so I made some pivots and I decided I was also really interested in people. And I studied interpersonal group communication thinking, okay, maybe I'll, I'll re- make a real shift in my life plans and I'm going to do business consulting and help organizations that were going through mergers and acquisitions and have better company culture. And my wife and I got married our senior year of school. We both graduated in 2000 and she was going to do student teaching, which was unpaid. And I needed to get a a full-time job. I was working part-time for eight bucks an hour as an assistant to a farmer's insurance agent going, Oh my gosh, I've, we've got a baby on the way. We're getting kicked out of married student housing. I need a job. <laughs> and so I was interviewing for everything. And at one point I, I may have ended up working for the Utah transit authority of all things. Thankfully that didn't happen. And I found a job as a program director at a large assisted living facility there in Salt Lake. And I thought, well, this is fun. I could, teach anything that seniors want to learn about. And that means I get to teach anything that I'm interested in as long as seniors are interested in it. And if you have enough residents in a community, somebody's going to like what you want to talk about. And so I, I looked at it as an opportunity to spend six to 12 months learning about all the stuff that I didn't have time to learn about in school and teach it to other people while I was interviewing for my real job in the background. And it turned out that I woke up about 12 months later and realized, man, this is fun. And one of the things that stood out is that I was working with a lot of people that were in early stages of Alzheimer's or other dementing illnesses. And I'd been interested in Alzheimer's disease since high school, when I wrote a paper about a potential theory for a cause of Alzheimer's disease. And that just led to becoming an executive director. And I worked with that company for nine years and then moved back to Boise, like you pointed out in the bio, that I, I had the chance to take over a struggling memory care community and really kind of have my own little laboratory to try things. So that was a fun start to everything that was kind of unpredictable, like probably a lot of the listeners of of the podcast here. So many people start out doing one thing and wind up very different area, but it's, it's an exciting ride. Dude, I studied architecture in college and here I am as a personal trainer and nutrition coach for 17 years. Like this was never what I intended to do. And I, <laughs> I loved how you described, um, how fun things were. I think that's a really good indication that we're on the right path. We're good at something and it's also really enjoyable and, and fun for us. So I love that story. Um, all of those things you've been talking about as far as like helping companies become better, um, that seems really progressive. And writing a paper about Alzheimer's 20 years ago, Alzheimer's just definitely was not as much of a thing back then that it is now. Is that correct? Yeah, certainly it was a thing, but people weren't talking about it as much. And definitely there weren't a lot of people in high school that were talking about it. And I don't even know what hooked me back then. I can't remember what it was about it. Except I always growing up wanted to do something that really impacted the world in a big way and helping improve a brain for someone that had major cognitive dysfunction 
was exciting even back then. And it's what drives me now. It's really what gets me out of bed every single day to try to find as many solutions as we can. And I had no idea back then how interconnected all sorts of brain related disorders are, whether we're talking about mental health or cognitive health. And it's been so exciting to see the research start to converge over about the last 10 years. And uh, it's just, it, it's way more exciting than I could have predicted. Down to things like brain fog. We joke around about things like brain fog mm -hmm. in your 20s and 30s. Like that's that's pretty serious. You should really start to pay attention to some of those things when they come on. And we're seeing people diagnosed with things like Alzheimer's younger and younger and younger as years go on. It's really quite um, interesting. Where are we as far as like the state of the state when it comes to research on dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that? All of this seems to have been hugely derailed by some apparently fraudulent um, studies that have been done and sent us down the wrong path for decades, it seems. Like where are, are we making any progress when it comes to things like Alzheimer's and dementia as, as far as like conventional approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of the research that has been done has focused on what's called the amyloid hypothesis. Most people know that there are sticky plaques in the Alzheimer's brain, that one of the biomarkers of the disease is that you have amyloid beta protein that clumps up and forms these plaques. And for a long time, the belief has been that those plaques are both the symptom and the cause of the disease, and that if you could get rid of amyloid beta protein, or at least excess amyloid, if you could get rid of those plaques, that it would be disease modifying and that people would do better. And reality is there are lots of drugs, hundreds of trials that have been done in the last few decades. And some of those drugs actually really do get rid of amyloid beta protein. The problem is nobody's actually gotten better from that. And some people in some of the studies actually get worse. And that's caused a lot of researchers to really question the amyloid hypothesis. And there's still quite a debate going on. You'll find some people that still passionately argue for getting rid of amyloid. And you find drugs, even some of the more recent drugs that have been developed, focused on getting rid of amyloid. And you'll find other researchers that have said, you know what, what if amyloid is just the symptom of a deeper problem? So a great analogy that, that might help everybody would be to talk about um, white blood cells. What if you didn't understand that elevated white blood cells was a sign of your immune system fired up against something? And what if you noticed, hey, every time this person gets sick, their white cell count goes up? We need to create a drug to get rid of those excess white blood cells. If we mistake correlation for causation and we go down that pathway and all of a sudden we give people a drug that's going to wipe out those excess white blood cells, then what do we do? Well, we take what is a normal physiological response. It's part of the immune response. And we shoot it in the foot, basically. We, we create a condition where it cannot work the way that it should. Well, a lot of people might die from something like that. Now, if amyloid beta protein is a symptom of Alzheimer's disease, if it's one of the consequences, if, if the body's inability to clear amyloid tells us something deeper about what's going on, then it's that deeper thing that's the real problem. So the question is not how do you get rid of the amyloid, it's why is the body producing excess amyloid and not clearing it well in the first place? And right now, the state of the research has been focused on some people pivoting that different direction and other people clinging to the amyloid hypothesis.
The last thing that I'd add to it uh, to kind of round out the perspective is that more and more brain health researchers are focusing on the idea of a multimodal approach as opposed to monotherapies. And monotherapies, I think, are the result of kind of getting intoxicated with our own success. Think about how people were living and dying in about 1900. The average age at death in 1900 was, 1900 was the mid to late 40s. And that average was dragged down heavily by things like women dying in childbirth, children dying of uh, horrible infectious diseases. Um, people were dying of acute illness and infection. So uh, if you're working in Nebraska on the farm and you get your arm caught in a hay baler, and it's partially ripped off. The fact that microvascular surgery hasn't been invented in 1900, that's not gonna serve you very well. The fact that antibiotics weren't really discovered until about 1927 is gonna mean that you might lose the arm, they might amputate the arm, and you probably won't die of that, but there's a high likelihood that you'll die of infection that sets in. And if we can create a single drug that deals with the single biggest factor in that picture, which is bacterial infection, then it's likely that you're going to survive and you're going to do better. And we started discovering everything from antibiotics to vaccinations to all sorts of single interventions that were absolute game changers. And that developed this bias toward doing a double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover trial as the gold standard to determine something objectively works. And that has served us really well to a point, except in diseases that people are now living with for decades before they die. Things like Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, um, obesity, and all of its attendant problems. All of these things are lifestyle-driven factors, and they're driven by multiple things. It's, it's not just one thing that's causing those issues. And that warrants more of a multimodal approach. And that's where we're finding real success in neurodegenerative diseases these days. That's amazing. That was so well explained. I love that analogy. I was just thinking like, good thing, whatever he is describing, big, big pharma would never do that. They would never give us a pill to only treat one thing that's the wrong thing anyway. They wouldn't do that, would they? Come on. It's never happened. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So anecdotally, over the years, you know, starting your company as well, like, what have you noticed with, with the population? I, again, we said that, you know, there's more people presenting with all kinds of mental disorders. We know that anxiety and depression is on the rise. Um, you know, we, we're giving, you know, days for mental health. People can take off work for mental health days. Like, like what have you noticed just anecdotally over the course of your career? Yeah, I'll answer it both anecdotally and pretty objectively. Um, on the objective side, the World Health Organization came out last year and said Parkinson's disease is the fastest growing uh, neurological condition on the planet. It's outpacing Alzheimer's disease, which is also on the rise and slated to grow pretty dramatically in the next couple of decades. Um, but anecdotally, um, I have seen more people developing Alzheimer's disease at ages younger than 65 than I've ever seen in the last 23 years. Um, early onset Alzheimer's means you get it prior to age 65. And we've seen people as young as 39 diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Oh that is absolutely scary to guys like you and me that look at it and we think, man, that's like peer group and younger than peer group. I mean, I'm, I'm 48 this month and, uh, 
I know plenty of people that are in my age bracket that have been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm seeing a lot more mental health cases than I ever saw a couple of decades ago. And I think there are clear-cut reasons for that. And there's a lot that's still yet to be determined, but I have some opinions about that. So I think all of these conditions have been on the rise for a variety of reasons. Can I ask you to speculate on what those reasons might be in your opinion? Like it's got to be something with our current modern lifestyles that's causing this, unless it's something where we're getting better at diagnosing now than we were before. What what are some of your ideas? Again, it could be speculation. I, I don't think it's all that controversial myself, the things we're going to talk about, but what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I appreciate you acknowledging that some of it might be speculation and we're just having a conversation here that's, that's interesting and, um, I, I think it's interesting to anybody to sit down and consider these things. So, for example, um, since about 2007, celiac disease has had about a 400% increase. That's ridiculous. That is not possible based on adaptations in the human genome. The, the human genome does not change that fast. Um, that has to be an environmental issue. And in my opinion, I think it's because that was right around the time that glyphosate or Roundup was started, uh, it started to get used as a desiccant with wheat. Yep. And so the, the U.S. grain supply is in really sad shape. And I have clients that can go to Europe and eat all the bread they want. and They never have gut health problems. And they cannot do that in this country because so many of the grains, the overwhelming majority of the grains are sprayed with glyphosate as a desiccant. I think that's wreaked havoc on the U.S. health system um, and and the health of, of people everywhere. I think the fact that um, Alzheimer's disease is diabetes of the brain in so many cases, about 80% of the cases with Alzheimer's disease, if you do a PET scan and you look at glucose utilization in the brain, you see massive depletion in the brain's ability to use sugar. And I think that a lot of what's driving that is the standard American diet. There's been a huge uptick uh, just in my lifetime in the amount of processed food that people eat, which is very inflammatory and high in, in uh, refined carbohydrates. So I think that's been a problem. I think people also are looking for a lot more convenience because we're trying to get more done in the same amount of time. And so, hey, if we could pull in someplace and wait five minutes and have something that's labeled a meal and put that into our bodies and keep moving on with the day, we can delude ourselves into thinking that we can get away with something like that. And, and I don't think we're getting away with it very well. Um, I think 30 to 40% of the population has an undiagnosed methylation defect genetically, and that's influencing their body's ability to convert B vitamins to an active form. It's affecting their neurotransmitter production. It's affecting um, their detox pathway through the liver. I think the fact that there are literally tens of thousands of chemicals that did not exist just 50 years ago, and now they're ubiquitous, is a huge problem that we're facing. In fact, I think that's the, the root cause of Parkinson's disease. There's tons of evidence that Parkinson's is driven by toxicity and it's everything from herbicides to pesticides to industrial pollutants and plastics and you name it. There's, there's tens of thousands of things contributing to that. Wow. So that's a little bit of the low hanging fruit in my opinion. Yeah. I 
completely agree with all of that. Um, and we are calling um, dementia type 3 di diabetes at this point because the brain is unable to use the fuel that it's completely awash with, which is carbohydrate, sugar, glucose. And it would be awesome if we had an alternate fuel that we could run the brain on. That would be very convenient. Mm. <laughs> Luckily, we do. Gee. Um, gee. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about you starting your company. It sounded like you were seeing a need and you created your company around that need. What what drove you to take that that big step and to uh, try to provide that for, pe for people? It's actually a really fun and I think an inspiring story. It inspires me um, because it involves another person who means everything to me. So I was running a memory care community. And as the executive director, I was on call 24 seven, um, which meant that I was sometimes dealing with real life and death kinds of issues. And my wife, Amy, has an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa that robs a person of night vision and it robs them progressively of peripheral vision. And she had gotten to the point that she had to quit driving because her vision had narrowed to the point it simply wasn't safe. We have four children and two of them are out of the house now and we've got a, a senior and a freshman in high school. So we're at a different state now than we were seven and a half, eight years ago. But at that time, we didn't have anybody in the home that was driving except for me. And I was stressed beyond belief. I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. I hadn't read a book in years, which if you know me, that is like my house is flooded with books. I'm like the biggest bibliophile imaginable. So I, I was not being myself. I was just existing and trying to get by from day to day. And even though I was loving my work at a memory care community, and we were having a lot of success, I honestly felt inwardly like I was failing myself, my family, and my team at work. And things started to come to a head a little bit um, as I got more and more stressed. And it all really converged one particular night um, in 2015, where I was driving my family to the school play, the elementary school for one of our kids. And the phone rang. It was the facility and they said, hey, we've got so-and-so who's actively dying. And she was on hospice, but not expected to die that quickly. We thought she'd be around for two or three months. Family was there. They were in a little bit of distress. They needed some support. And basically the message was, Eric, you're, you're the only guy that can deal with this right now. We need you to come. So I dropped off my family at the school struggled to find someone to come pick them up afterward because I had no idea what time I'd get home. And I spent the 15 minutes driving to the facility feeling like I was absolutely failing my family. And then I spent about the next two and a half or three hours feeling like I was failing the family of that lady who was dying because I didn't want to be there. I honestly was torn and and feeling like I should be at my little girl's play. And it was just ripping me up inside. And so I, I felt like I didn't serve anybody very well that night. I got home a little bit after midnight, looked in the mirror, and I hardly recognized myself. And I'd been planning for a long time what it would take to be able to start um, a, a consultant kind of business and grow it from there. But I hadn't done it for a variety of reasons, the biggest of which was I was so busy. I just had so much going on. I didn't know when I would do it. And I got up the next morning and I sat down with Amy and I said, honey, I've got to make a change because I'm honestly going to die an early death if I don't do something differently. And she just looked at me and said, what's stopping you? 
what, what would you do? And I said, well, I want to start a company and here's what it would look like. Here's what we would do. She said, that sounds amazing. Why aren't you doing that? And I said, honey, I don't have time to start a company. And she just looked at me and smiled and said, have you ever thought that maybe you needed to quit your day job? So you had time to start a company. And it was like, mind blown light bulb. It, it was one of the most important moments of my entire life. And I literally thought if, if the woman who loves me and supports me and is counting on me to support our family has that kind of courage, then I can do this. And three days later I gave notice and that, that was the beginning of what now has been a seven and a half year journey that um, I never could have predicted. <laughs> that is an epic story, my friend. I love that. That's awesome. Was it, Isn't I mean, cool? super cool. I, obviously you had your wife on your side and she was encouraging you, but that must've been terrifying. I think it's always terrifying. I've, I've heard entrepreneurship described as jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and trying to sew the parachute on the way down. And that is true. I mean, it, this is absolutely the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, but it's the best thing that I've ever done. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've learned more than I ever could have predicted that I would have learned and become more than I ever thought that I could become. And, and it's just the beginning. I'm so excited every day for where this is going and the number of lives that we can influence with what we're doing. That's amazing, dude. I love that. We were kind of the same, man. We were working for our local gym. We got unemployed during the pandemic and had to start mm -hmm. our own business. And you're right. You're flying the plane as you're building it, but it is amazing. And we wouldn't be having this conversation now if the pandemic hadn't happened and we hadn't lost our job. So good for you for taking advantage of an amazing opportunity. Uh, what? So what did you envision your business being in the beginning and how has it evolved over time? Oh, that's a really important question. Um, so initially, I just thought, hey, I've developed tools and systems and practices that really help serve dementia patients more effectively. And they were focused on interpersonal skills and, and studying out the environment and how we can set people up for greater success when they're living through the lens of a dementing illness. And so I was already getting asked to come to local hospitals and train the social work team or go to this or that facility and train their teams. And I just wanted to do that on a national level. And I thought this will work really well because I know when my family has certain needs and I would have freedom over my time, I wouldn't be on call 24 seven. So I was going to be a solopreneur. I was going to consult and I was going to do everything from get on stages and teach professionals about this to consult with families and professional groups and help them learn some of these interpersonal skills. So you might think of it as like the art side of things. What I couldn't have predicted would be the way that the science side would come in so heavily within a year. And I've always been interested in science, always. And I'm someone that just loves to learn about practically anything. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about how it evolved. I was contacted by an assisted living company in Arizona, not Hal's company. This was, this was a different group. And they were kind of rookies at doing memory care. 
And they were referred by someone that knew my work really well. And they said, hey, you got to talk to Eric if you're looking for someone to help you design a really good memory care program. So they, they reached out. I flew down to Arizona, spent a few days with them, went through their facilities with them, loved um, the owners of the company, was highly impressed with them as individuals and was excited to work with them and basically pitched them on a year long project to really optimize their memory care experience for their residents and train their staff and, and do all sorts of work with that. And we had a contract drawn up, handshake deal on the agreement. It was going to make my year. Um, it was like, wow, okay, this is actually really working. And they said, we've got one more person that needs to sign off on this. Uh, give us a couple of days. We'll get back to the final document and we'll just make this thing happen. Well, two and a half weeks went by and I didn't hear from him. And I started to get worried. And I literally prayed and just said, hey, if this is not supposed to happen, then don't let it happen. And I'm going to be grateful. Either way, I'm just going to be thankful for whatever happens. And three days later, the owner of this company called me and said, Eric, I'm so sorry. You probably think we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But after we talked to you, we met this nurse practitioner that has advanced training in neuroendocrinology, and he's done training with a neurologist at UCLA who has pioneered methods for treating Alzheimer's patients, and he's been using them with patients in his primary care practice, and he thinks that he could help our residents do better. And I said, did he train with Dr. Bredesen at UCLA? And they said, yeah, how did you know? And I said, well, I've read his research. I, I know all about that, but I didn't know that anyone was using it in clinical practice. And they said, oh, yeah, he's done this with a bunch of people. Actually, he lives in Idaho, and he's done it in Pocatello, where he's got these clinics. And we really think that he could help our residents, but we can't afford to hire him and you. So, and I went, oh, okay, I see where this is going. I said, look, you should do that. That would be absolutely game changing. It's an amazing idea. I totally get it. They said, well, we hope you'll stay in touch. Well, I didn't call Randy like they suggested that I do. They said, yeah, he's in Idaho. You ought to, you ought to follow up with him. I, I was too busy trying to replace what would have been a year-long contract. So I hustled and I went off. I did a dementia workshop in Denver that was very successful. And I thought, well, let's rinse and repeat that in another major metropolitan area. Who do I know in Phoenix? And so I called these guys and I said, hey, I know we're not working together, but would you host an event and I'll give you some free um, seats at the event and I'll train some of your team. They're like, cool. We didn't think you'd ever talk to us again. And I said, well, why not? You guys are great. So anyway, I did the event. They loved it. And then about two months later, I get a call out of the blue from this guy named Randy Vaudry, who says, Hey, uh, yeah, Eric, I'm, I'm working with this company down in Phoenix, trying to implement all these techniques. And they're recognizing that if their entire staff isn't really well-trained, they can't do everything I'm asking them to do. So they said, Randy, we need you to train our staff. And my response was, well, I'm not a clinician. I don't know how to do that. And um, they said, well, we know a guy. You should call him. He actually lives in Idaho. So he said, I'm calling you. And I want to talk to you about splitting this contract. Neither of us will make very much money, but we get to pioneer something and, and try it out. And it turned out I was driving through his part of the state about five days later. And so we just arranged to have dinner uh, we met at his house. 
And I ended up staying up in his living room till after midnight. He brought out this massive binder of all of his research. He had taken Dale Bredesen's work from UCLA and literally looked up every last footnote in all of his papers and then looked up all the footnotes in those papers and kind of came up with his own little method for doing this multimodal approach, started test driving it on primary care patients in Eastern Idaho, started having phenomenal results. And I left that night 100% convinced that if we would combine the art side of things, take all the good that I could offer and combine it with everything that Randy was doing, it would be a one plus one is 10 kind of moment. So we split the contract. Six months later, we looked up at each other one day and said, we love working together and we have learned so much and we're always going to work together. Why are we doing this on contract? So I offered him 50% of the company and that's that's history. We've been working together ever since trying to grow this venture. And in the meantime, he said, Eric, if you're going to do this work, I've got to put you through a crash course in med school. So we literally got together twice a week for one to three hours a day talking about here's how you read labs. Here's how this part of physiology works, um, it, which is why often people say, well, Eric, you're not a doctor, but how how do you understand this or that thing in in these labs or how do you know to ask those questions? It's because I've spent years now developing that and and asking questions and being trained in that. And um, it's it's been a wild, crazy, super fun ride to do all that. Serendipity, man. That's amazing. I guess your prayer was uh, definitely answered on that occasion. <laughs> oh, big time. That's big crazy. Time. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. So with with all of his research, like had, you, had he found different methods that were not practiced conventionally? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Like all the contents of his binder and all the programs you guys were starting? Was, was that where the research was? Yes. So if the audience isn't familiar with him, Dale Bredesen is an MD neurologist um, that had been studying Alzheimer's disease for 30 years, mostly in the lab, um, really trying to develop pharmaceutical agents that would work. And along the way, he realized you're probably not going to be able to take a drug that that'll cure Alzheimer's disease and, and find something that's effective because Alzheimer's isn't caused by one thing. There are many different factors. And at the time, he had identified about 36 things that were contributing to the disease. And nobody had all 36, but everyone had a significant number of things on the list. They were just different things. So the perfect drug would have to do 36 plus things. And the idea is if you have a boat with 36 potential holes in it and you don't know what they are, you got to come up with a patch for all of those holes. And you can't make a drug that does that many different things. And the problem with so much Alzheimer's research or research for any sort of problem that's caused by multiple factors is that if you have in your mindset that the only way to know that something works is to test one variable against placebo, then it's going to be a lesson in frustration year after year. And you're going to spend billions of dollars and not come up with any answers. So for example, we've known for a long time as a medical community that magnesium is essential for heart health and essential for brain health. If your magnesium is way off, you can have a heart attack and die. It's that serious. And yet if you test magnesium and treating um, suboptimal magnesium levels against a placebo, you'll find out real fast that is no cure for Alzheimer's disease. 
And you could test all sorts of things. Like you can acknowledge that testosterone is critical for memory function for both men and women. So does testosterone replacement fix Alzheimer's disease? Is that a cure? No, it's not. You can test any of these many factors against placebo, and you'll find some that actually have modest benefit here and there, but none of them is a cure. And all that Dr. Bredesen and his team at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging said was, well, what if it's not about one thing? What if it's about the aggregation of marginal gains? What if it's about stacking up a whole lot of little wins that equate to one massive victory? What if it's like saying, you've got 36 potential holes in the boat. We know you got about 10. Let's measure all 36, figure out where your 10 are and patch all of those holes at once. And quit crying over the fact that when you patch one hole in the boat, the darn thing still sinks. It sounds crazy logical once you think about it in those terms, but that's just not how research has typically been done for the last many decades. And, and that's really all that we've done is to pursue that multimodal approach. Um, what we do is a little bit different than Dr. Bredesen's approach in that there are many other amazing researchers out there in the, the field of brain science that recognize different things that Dr. Bredesen doesn't necessarily include in his protocols that we feel like are really important. Um, things like omega-6-3 ratio. Well, you find that in the concussion literature. And there are plenty of people with Alzheimer's disease that have had brain injuries over the years. One major concussive injury can double your Alzheimer's risk. And so we've gone out, we've essentially become like Google for all things related to brain health. So if you've got a brain health problem, uh, you instead of going out to Google and coming up with millions upon millions of, uh, of articles on your symptoms, we just try to go out to the very best researchers in the field and say, who has done work in this area and how can we leverage that work? And so a personalized approach um, might look like, well, let's measure all the factors that are contributing to your symptoms. Let's go out and find out who's done great research in this collection of stuff. And let's develop a personalized plan and give you basically the user manual to your body and the coaching and guidance necessary to implement it so that you get a system um, that works for you personally and is as individual as your body is. Because literally, there is no one like you in the universe. Um, every human system is absolutely unique. And so we've got to approach it that way. And we've tried to come up with an organized way of doing that. That's amazing. And I know you guys use tons of different methods to help when we can talk about that. I'm I'm familiar with Dr. Bredesen's work. I've not read it. I've not mm -hmm. read any of his primary research, but we've interviewed lots of people who have. Um, I know he was, you know, by and large in kind of the low carbohydrate space. I think a little bit more on the mm -hmm. plant-based side. We're a little bit more on the animal-based side. Um, is it is it fair to say that of all those different things, all those holes in the ship, would, would nutrition and the food that we eat probably be among the bigger holes uh, in the in the bow of the Titanic? Like, isn't that a pretty good size one that, that most people struggle with? Uh, yes, I would say in general, that's a really big hole. In fact, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are foundational things 
that are true for everybody, things that everyone has to pay attention to, and you can't medicate your su- or supplement your way out of them. Um, so we have a program called Healthy Foundations that just helps people learn about those foundational things. And then on top of that, you have to get more and more refined and personalized and do blood work and, and dial things in. But foundational things are diet and sleep and stress management and uh, physical activity and thoughtful use of fasting. And you can't medicate or supplement your way out of those kinds of things. If you're not prioritizing your sleep because you're caught up in some old puritanical belief that I'll I'll rest when I die or um, sleep is for the weak. If you're caught up in that line of thinking and you don't understand that no, sleep is when the brain takes out the trash. Sleep is, you have to sleep to be superior. Um, if you don't understand that and you fail to prioritize your sleep, you're going to pay the consequences. And there's no pill that you can take that's going to get you out of that problem. Same thing with diet. We all have to eat, but how we fuel our body matters a lot. And I think that it needs to be individualized. So it's important to focus on principles that govern effective fueling of the body versus dogma and and getting caught in the fray of all these dietary tribalists that just want to fight all day long about whose diet is the very best as if everybody needs to fuel the system in exactly the same way which i think is ridiculously naive yeah i agree and i think it's kind of cool that you position it in the way that there's the way that we individualize things and and provide care for you know people in in different ways but also here's the foundation that anybody can use and you could probably give that to a 20 year old a 40 year old a 60 year old an 80 year old anybody could really benefit from that it's ironic that the person that says that they're going to sleep when they die is actually going to speed up um that happening and so they'll find out that they were right all along you nailed it (laughs) speed up the process 100 (laughs) percent. when i look at that's great observations (laughs) you were right you were absolutely right so when i go to your website and I, i go to the tab that's that shows me your methods and the things that you do that kind of set you apart i see things that a lot of us in this kind of space talk about like movement i see saunas i see um, you're doing things with oxygen therapy tell us a little bit about some of the unique the more unique things that you guys offer yeah thank you um i would say the magic of what we do is really in coaching um if you go to a doctor and and the doctor gives you a really great workup and and a very personalized list of all the things that you need to do. It can feel exciting in the moment. And then about by the next morning, when you wake up and you look at that list of things and you say, what did he mean by this thing? Or what was she telling me here? I don't know. I'm not sure that I get it. Then you start feeling a little bit lost. And to have a coach and a guide that really understands things at a deep level and can talk you through it and help you apply it and help you understand both the art side and the science side of things, the psychology of it and understand habit formation and understand how to change your approach. That is magical for people. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of the programs that are out there. And I think a lot of what's out there is also um, protocol medicine. And I realize we talk about our signature product as the enhanced protocol, but that's really a process that allows us to get to a very personalized, individualized approach. It's a systematic way of approaching things um, rather than just doing the same thing for everyone. Um, You mentioned some of the devices that we use. And we have a brain therapy studio here in Boise. We also have partner therapy studios in other areas. 
And we're using everything from red light therapy, photobiomodulation, uh, to exercise with oxygen, to hyperbarics, to um, post-electromagnetic field therapy, audiovisual entrainment, uh, interactive metronome. These are devices that are either stimulating blood flow or oxygenation, or uh, they're calming the inflammatory response. They're improving detox pathways, or they're helping us retrain the brain in, in one or more particular ways. And I view them kind of as the icing on the cake. It's important to create the condition where the brain can heal itself. Um, there's nobody that can heal the brain. The brain heals itself if the conditions are right. But then you also have to prioritize rehabilitating the brain. So think of it like a shattered arm. You have a, I mean, you go up to Alta or something in your area and you have a horrific freak ski accident, you shatter your arm, you're going to be in a cast for months. And when that cast comes off, you could say the arm is healed, but everybody knows that arm's going to be weak until you do some weight training and you rehabilitate that arm. And the brain is the same way. You've got to create conditions where it will heal, but then you have to stimulate it to form new neural connections and to start developing some uh, some cognitive oomph so that you can uh, do what you need to again. And everything that we do is designed to help those two parts of the process occur. Yeah, that's so interesting. As you're listing off all these different devices and all this technology, it's it's amazing and wonderful. And I'm thinking, like, these are all the things that we wouldn't have needed a few hundred years ago, living our normal lifestyles, getting heat exposure and yeah. taking in the scenery. I mean, I quit skiing, so there's no risk of me shattering my arm on the ski slopes, but I did go mountain bike this last weekend. And I'm realizing as I'm riding through the trail, you're taking in such a tremendous input of all of these different colors and textures and where to position your bike and how your body is in space like that's a, a huge bandwidth of things that you know it's 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 like riding your bike it's it seems pretty simple so we've we know now like like if you'd have gone back even like five years ago or maybe even three years ago and said that the primary function of exercise is is less about the body and more about the brain i would have said that's absolutely not true and i think it's absolutely true talk about movement in the sense of of mental health and how we're losing that in our normal lifestyles now, great question, Casey. Motion is lotion. Being in motion is the natural state of the human body. Um, rest should be the exception as far as just sitting down and being sedentary. That really should be the exception. The body is meant to be in a dynamic, changing environment. And you kind of hinted at it when you said, hey, the way that people are living hundreds of years ago mitigated so many of the things that the devices that we're using are trying to treat. You're absolutely right. If you're out getting sun exposure, you're, you're getting red wavelengths of light. You're also getting other important wavelengths of light. If you're exposed to heat and cold and those sorts of things, then yeah, that's a dynamic environment and you're inducing heat shock proteins and cold shock proteins and all the benefits that go with, with those types of things. As far as movement, physical activity stimulates the body to produce more of a growth hormone for brain cells, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And a lot of people in your audience are probably familiar with that. But common sense isn't always common practice. It's one thing to know about something. It's another thing to intentionally apply it. And I think a lot of people get stuck because they make their health the one negotiable factor in life. So if you think about everything that you have to do in life is stuff on your plate. And that's a metaphor that we use all the time. Oh, I got too much stuff on my plate. If what you have on your plate 
is everything that you're involved in in life and your health priorities, then what gives when something else comes on your plate? Almost always it's your sleep or it's your workout or it's the quality of your meal or something else related to your health. We've grown up in a society that treats those things as the negotiable factors. That's where we can fudge a little bit here and there because, you know, I got to get this project done at work and I just don't have time. Um, I was working with a former San Francisco 49er recently um, on a coaching call and he's got both uh, genetic factors that elevate Alzheimer's risk. And he played concussive sports for decades and he's already got cognitive symptoms. And th like, this is not a good thing. He was not doing well cognitively when he started the enhanced protocol and he did way better for a period of time. And then I had a coaching call with him and checked in and things were not going quite as well. And I said, what happened? Well, we had this thing come up at work and this and that happened. And so I quit eating as well as I was. And I started missing out on some of these supplements that were helping me. And I didn't do this. And I said, dude, you made your health negotiable. So let's shift that because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And I think we should all take a lesson from the experience that I had with, with this former NFL star. And I said, if you would just treat your health as the one non-negotiable factor on your plate, then if you bring something else on your plate, something different is going to have to come off. You're going to have to say no and get really thoughtful about your to don't list instead of just saying yes, yes, yes. And then letting your health slide, because if health is non-negotiable, it has to be something else that comes off the list. You either take that something else off or you don't say no to the new project because whatever happens, you're not going to let your health slide because if you develop Alzheimer's disease, you're not going to be doing any of that other stuff. And he said, yeah, I totally get it. That's that's right. And it makes sense when you talk about it, but that is not how we have been born and bred in this culture. Yeah, We sacrifice our health before we sacrifice anything else. And I think that's a huge problem. That's so well explained, the whole non-negotiable thing. But dude, that's how good ultra-processed food is. That's how good it tastes to people, that people are willing to suffer mightily because we have donuts. They're that tasty. That's what it is. It's crazy. <laughs> well, it, it is crazy. And yeah, I think a lot of what drives it is that it, it, this is actually really complex. We could have an entire discussion just about food and addiction to food and why people do what they do. But I think it's part of the natural human tendency to, even if we know that something is bad for us, if there's not an absolute immediate consequence, we tend to delay things. And we say, well, I'll do that tomorrow. And it's, it's kind of, kind of like a line from the old musical, the music man where professor Hill is talking to Mary in the librarian and inviting her to meet him at the footbridge in 15 minutes. And she doesn't want to show up. She says, well, maybe tomorrow. And he says, Oh, miss Marion, if you pile up enough tomorrows, you're going to have a whole lot of empty yesterdays. <laughs> so meet me at the footbridge in 15 minutes. And I, I think we would all do well to really intentionally work to make that shift, but it's hard. It's against our nature. We all know that making this choice now might be what we want in the moment, but not what we want long-term. And it's just easy to give into that. So I think part of what helps us overcome it is to really work hard for a period of time to optimize our brain health 
and know exactly what it's like to live with an optimal brain. Because once you experience that, <laughs> you don't want to go back. You don't want to go back. Um, we live and work in a knowledge economy and our brains are our tools. And people spend truckloads of money going to workshops, learning how to be more productive with their time. And yet, if you could get your brain 25 to 30% better, which is exactly what happens when we work with business executives and they do a three-month program to optimize their brain health, if you can get your brain and your processing speeds 25 to 30% better, then you naturally get more done in the day because your tool is sharper and you're able to do the work. Uh, going to a conference to learn business building skills or productivity skills when you're not taking care of your brain is no different than buying new software and trying to load it onto really old hardware. It never works very well. Like if you're on, on a device that can't run past iOS three or something, and you're trying to load new software on it, it's not going to work. And so I encourage people all the time, take care of your hardware and yeah, go out and get the training that, that constitutes the new software. But that's when you get a dynamic, really impressive result. Combine the new learning with with an optimal brain. And you'll never want to go back. You, if you do start to slide, you'll say, this feels terrible. And I didn't know before how bad off I was because I didn't know what it felt like to feel amazing. Yep. And that's motivating. I think that's what helps people maintain. Certainly that's what helps me long-term because my brain is way better than it was in my early thirties. And I'm grateful for it. And I never want to go back to that. I would never go back either. Yeah, that's such a good point. I love that. I, we, we were talking offline um, about your website and about your company. And mm -hmm. A Mind for All Seasons ended up being the perfect title for it. Because, you know, I'm thinking dementia, Alzheimer's, and certainly that's happening younger and younger and can start with brain fog and that kind of thing. But as I'm, as I'm scrolling down on your page, and I'm seeing different stories and testimonials and things like that. I'm seeing, you know, little Johnny who had a concussion at age nine. It's like, oh, yeah, like this starts really young. And so maybe we could save that for another discussion, we can come back and, and talk about some of those other things. But sticking with some of the really more difficult later in life kinds of things, the Parkinson's, the Alzheimer's, any anything that falls under that umbrella of dementia, mm -hmm. it, it's hard for the person going through it. Like the person obviously is suffering, they would like to remember things and they can't. I would argue that it's almost worse for the people around that person, the family, the caretakers, all the people that are, you know, around the person who is suffering, they suffer greatly. Um, can you talk about what you've observed as far as that goes and how you've been able to improve those interactions, even, even within the family as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we still do a lot of work through coaching and workshops and training to help families learn how to navigate that. Um, so, for example, we we offer a free daily video called the Caregiver Minute that just takes three to five minutes to teach one key idea, one actionable item of how you either take better care of yourself as a family or professional caregiver or how you take better care of the person that you're serving or something about brain science that you might be able to leverage um, and so we do a lot of work that way to support families. And I've learned a lot by working with uh, thousands of families all over the United States and speaking to healthcare professionals in 38 of the 50 states. And one of the key things that I really point out to people is there really is an art side to this and there's a science side to this. If we can help someone's brain work a little bit better, everything gets easier. If we can help them move better physically, everything gets easier. But when we use good interpersonal skills and techniques and we understand how the world looks 
when you're viewing it through the lens of a significant dementia, then we're able to approach people in ways that are much more helpful. Uh, when you and I were talking offline, Casey, you mentioned the vital five pillars. And if you'd like, I can talk very briefly about what those are, because I think they're really helpful for families. Please, that would be great. Um, so the vital five pillars were developed years ago when the Alzheimer's Association reached out and said, Eric, we want you to be the keynote speaker at a family caregiver conference. And the topic we'd like you to address is how can families help their loved ones who are living with dementia when their behavior is totally out of character? When, they're, when this tough stuff is happening and mom is yelling at you saying, who are you? Get out of my house. How do you deal with that kind of thing? And I said, I'd love to talk about that. And then they dropped the bombshell that I was going to have 25 minutes to do it. And I felt like my head exploded. I went, how am I supposed to do that? I do day-long workshops on that subject. I teach at the college level about that. And I had already said yes. So I just went forward and thankfully had a couple months to prepare. And the way I prepared was to just brain dump every skill or technique or strategy that I had ever learned or tried or read about. And I looked for patterns and I found that they basically fell out into five key areas. And so I just arbitrarily called them the vital five pillars, uh, kind of taking a nod from Islam that has five pillars. I thought it sounded good. And I got up and I gave the talk and I gave five principles. I realized that these were principles that good technique derives from. And I was not prepared for the response to that because there was a lineup of families saying, oh, this was so helpful. This totally allowed me to see things differently. This immediately changes a lot. Can I ask you more about the vital five? And, and it, it just has gone on from there. So the word vital itself is an acronym. And I want to tell you about the T in vital first, because I think it's the biggest problem that we have as, as family or professional caregivers. It's called the task trap. And T reminds us to terminate the task trap. The task trap is what happens when you go straight to the task instead of making a meaningful connection with the person. You and I let friends help us all the time. We let family help us all the time. We don't let complete strangers help us. We've never opened the door to a complete stranger and say, hey, come on in. You have to establish trust before you have any hope of assisting an individual. And so the first step right out of the gate is to make that connection with people. So much good can happen just from that one thing. And yet healthcare professionals and family caregivers alike fall into thinking about people as the tasks that we have to perform when we're helping them. Uh, we have things called care plans that are really convenient tools for dehumanizing people because they're just list of tasks. we got to provide this help with bathing or this help with dressing, or this person needs to be reminded to take their pills at this time. And so we come up and we think that success is just doing that task and checking it off the list. And reality is that means we are often treating people as an object and not as a person. And if I kick an object, uh, it'll go in whatever direction I kick it. But if you kick a person, they're going to kick you back. And a lot of people who are serving people with dementia get kicked all the time, literally and, and figuratively, because they're falling into the task trap. So that, that's by far the biggest thing that I could share with someone interpersonally. If we go back to vital as an acronym, now that we've talked about the T, V reminds us to validate emotional experience for the other person. 
whatever they're going through, it's okay for them to feel, let them feel, give them space to feel. And instead of categorizing and judging emotion, learn to observe and label it instead. There's a big difference. And there's much we could say about that. The A in, or, um, excuse me, the I in vital reminds us to improvise and be in the moment. If I had a tool where I could wipe your brain clean of everything, except about the last 10 seconds and 30 years ago and earlier, which is about what a brain with a huge hole where the memory center should be is like. If I could do that, then your life would become an exercise in improvisation. You'd literally just be responding in the moment to what's happening, which means how the stage is set would in, uh, impact how the action goes. And it also means that you would take a lot of your cues in the moment from things that I was saying and doing. It's like you're just beamed on the scene in that moment. And you're looking around saying, okay, what's going on? What do I have to respond to? If people that are serving those with dementia can stop before they ever walk in the room and remind themselves, I'm about to step on stage in an improv act. And the first rule of improv is you never say no. You say yes, and you, you just go with things because it's real in that moment, or you're acting as if it's real. If you can do that for people with dementia, it creates more of the illusion of control. They feel a little bit more like things are happening in a normal and natural way, because to them, in the moment, they think things are pretty normal because the paradox of dementia is you don't remember all the stuff you're forgetting. So... Uh, validate emotional experience, improvise and be in the moment, terminate the task trap. And then we get to the A and vital, which is accommodate sensory deficits because all the senses can be impacted with Alzheimer's and visual and language processing are especially impacted. And if we don't accommodate those things, we're in trouble. Uh, there's tons we could say about that. One quick example. Uh, a lot of people with Alzheimer's don't see things that are similar in color when they're right next to each other. That means if you've got a white shower at home and the floor and the wall of the shower are white, number one, they can't judge where the floor ends and the wall begins. And if you can't judge the depth of the space, you don't want to get into it. And if they're at risk for falling and we try to get them to sit on a white shower chair against a white shower, guess what they can't see? And now they're fighting. And we think, oh, they're fighting to get in the shower. And really, it's a visual processing problem, and we're not doing a very good job accommodating that. The L in vital reminds us that life history is our most important tool because it gives us two key things, context and identity. If people are on stage in a perpetual improv act in a lot of these cases, then how they see the stage of life really depends on how they've lived their life and the kinds of things they've done. And so context is affected heavily by life history. And identity is something that we forge over a lifetime. And the problem that we run into when we're serving others is if we approach them in ways that are inconsistent with how they see themselves, we're toast. Nobody likes to be treated differently than, than they see themselves. And so we have to understand that sense of identity and come at it from that angle. If, if you're a 20-year-old young woman working as a CNA in a memory care facility, and you walk into the room of a retired five-star general, and you presume to tell him when he's going to get up, when he's going to take his pills, and when he's going to come have breakfast, you're shot right out of the gate. You're going to get a lot further if you walk in and say, good morning, sir, reporting for duty. 
and you play the right role and you approach him in ways consistent with how he views himself. Um, so just doing those five things and understanding those principles can absolutely change the trajectory that somebody's on. Yeah, I love all of that. I'm so glad you put that together in a way that people can remember. I didn't ask you before we got on, do you have any hard stops for time or can I ask you one more question? Um, actually, the appointment that I had uh, canceled. So we're, we're golden. Excellent. This, this works. Excellent. Okay, so I... I this is normally the part of the interview where I would ask you success stories, people you treated, whether it's something big or something recent. I don't have to do that because we're going to be back here again tomorrow mm -hmm. to actually talk to one. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So the person I want to hear the story about is yourself. You mentioned a 30 pound weight loss. You, you mentioned that you think way better now at 48 than you ever did in your thirties. Mm -hmm. Clearly something has changed. We talked about your, you know, your story related to your company. What about your story related to health? Learning all of these things must rub off on you in some way. If people are listening and not watching on YouTube, I, I can just tell you, like, <laughs> I can tell the listener, you're very, very fit. It's clear to see. So what are some of the things that you do and you leverage in your own life that's important enough for you to make not be negotiable? Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, very much. My personal journey is wrapped up in, in the development of a mind for all seasons. And the same could be said for every member of our team. We absolutely practice what we preach. If you come in here uh, to our brain therapy studio, which we use for training as well as treatment, um, where we, we train our partners. If you come in before or after hours, you're probably going to find members of our team on devices doing things. If you come in at lunch break, you're going to see that stuff. Um, so before I ever met Randy, I started the company and right out of the gate had more time freedom. And I realized that I needed a reset. And so I took one month and just didn't do anything except ponder and think about where I was going to go and how I wanted to build a company that centered around the lifestyle that I really wanted. And I started reading again and I started exercising more and things were already improved with that. I was sleeping more. I was managing my stress better. So I was on a better trajectory, but I was struggling to lose 30 pounds because I really didn't understand the principle of how insulin works as a, a growth factor. Um, I didn't understand that diet plays a much bigger role in a lot of cases when it comes to weight loss than physical activity. And so the night that I met Randy that I told you about, Casey, where I sat there and he pulled out his Bible-sized <clears throat> stack of research, he taught me a lot that night that really was pertinent to my own health. And when I left after midnight, I called my wife, Amy, knowing that I was going to be waking her up. And I, and I said, I just had the most life-changing conversation. And I told her, I am going all in immediately because I want to know how hard it is to shift my diet in the way that I think I'm going to need to while I'm on the road. Because I was on my way to a consulting gig that was going to have me away from home for three days. And I thought, if I can do this while I'm on the road, I can totally do this when I get home. And so I shifted into a, a very aggressive ketogenic diet um, right after I left Randy's house. And I, I didn't look back after that. I went to the grocery store the next morning, instead of going to a restaurant, 
I got the foods that I needed. Um, and within two months, the 30 pounds was gone and I was feeling amazing. And I loved that. And then I stayed on a strict ketogenic diet for six months because I loved how I felt on that. And then I started recognizing, well, the overall goal of a good dietary, dietary strategy is metabolic flexibility. And I don't want to be in ketosis all the time because it's really hard to maintain muscle mass. And I didn't want to lose more weight. Um, I'm a, a fairly thin guy as a rule anyway, other than I had gained 30 pounds. Um, so I'd gotten back down to a healthy weight, but I wanted to prioritize building muscle mass. And you got to have an insulin response for that. So I actually shifted where I eat a very ketogenic style diet during the workday. And a lot of mornings, I don't even eat breakfast. I, I eat two meals a day and I have a, a really solid, um, big ketogenic style lunch with lots of good fats, lots of olives and whole avocado. And I'll eat a salmon filet and uh, cauliflower rice with butter on it kind of a thing and nuts and seeds and plenty of stuff. It's, it's a big meal. And I will... I will shift into ketosis pretty aggressively by about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I can feel that shift. And so what that does for me is it allows my energy level to ramp up as the day goes on. So where a lot of people lose gas and energy at the end of the day, I'm actually ramping up feeling better and better so that by the time I get home, I'm at my peak. I'm ready to be there, like trying to be super dad, super husband when I show up at home. Um, and then in the evening, I usually liberalize my diet just a little bit. Um, I might have some roasted potatoes. Um, I, I might eat some vegetables that are have just enough carbohydrate or, or I might have apple slices for dessert or something that is very low carb, but it's, it's pulling me just enough out of that uh, state of ketosis that I'm not losing weight. I'm retaining a little bit more fluid. I'm able to maintain. And then when I do a heavy workout, like Saturday morning, I might go out and run five to seven miles and then come home and lift weights for 45 minutes. I will make sure I have a really big recovery meal with some intentional carbs and some protein um, after that workout within 30 to 60 minutes. And I'll just pound the food down. And I feel amazing when I do that. So I, I try to eat based on my goals at the time. That's been really important for me, but that's not the only thing that I've done. I've worked hard to prioritize my sleep. I've worked hard to prioritize exercise. I get blood work done on a pretty regular basis. Um, I prioritized my omega-6-3 ratio. I keep my antioxidants up. I do a lot to make sure that my nutrients and hormones are where they need to be. And that's a very dynamic thing. Um, two and a half, three years ago, I whacked my head on accident on a steel coat rack that I just installed oh. in the, the lobby of the office, nice. forgot that it was there, stood up and then like became my own patient. I was literally <laughs> seeing stars. The world was getting black and closing in on me. And I thought, no, I'm going down. And, <laughs> and I, I hung in there. I didn't hit the ground, but, um, we have a light helmet that to this day, I don't know that anyone else has it commercially available in the U.S. This is one made by Thor Photo Medicine. And it's used at places like the Boston VA for research on head injuries and blast concussion patients. And we love our light helmet. And I sat under the light helmet for several days and I felt better. 
And then I just kind of ignored things. I didn't do any blood work. And six months later, I had horrible brain fog and I had symptoms of post-concussion syndrome. And I thought, oh, Eric, you totally blew it. You didn't practice what you preach. And so I went and I got my blood work done. My pregnenolone, which is, that's like the master hormone for your brain. And it should be 150 to 200. Mine was down to 18. Oh, wow. So I immediately started supplementing that. And my omega-6-3 ratio was off. And my testosterone had tanked. And I had other hormonal wonkiness. And so I had to fix that. And it it took a few weeks. And then I was back on my A game and feeling really good. So it's a dynamic process all the time, every day to leverage the tools that I've learned and that we help others learn to just keep my own health on track and try to optimize everything that I'm doing. Yeah. Well, you've made such a good case for the payback for doing all those things, because you're right. None of those things are really easy. Uh, Doing all of them is not really easy. And it's not like people listening have to do all of them all at once from the very beginning. You take a step, you you get, go in the right direction with one of these things. And if you start feeling better, you're more likely to do another one and do another one. But you've made a really strong case for how much that type of lifestyle pays you back. The energy, the brain energy, the ability to feel great in the afternoon when everybody's fading, the ability to go create content that helps so many people to keep your company going. It's just, it's, it's wonderful work. And it, I, I feel the same way that like, man, it's really not that big of a sacrifice at the end of the day, I'm turning 40 in a few months and I feel as good now as I ever have in my entire life. And, you know, I can live with a few lifestyle practices that maybe seem a little bit restricted, but end up giving so much energy in life. And you are certainly such a great example of that. So we'll wrap this episode up for today. We will talk again tomorrow, which I'm very, very much looking forward to again. And we'll be talking with Hal Kramer and uh, your patient, uh, Melissa, I believe her name is. So that will be a very, very com- fun conversation. Um, and yeah, very much looking forward to that. But before then, let everybody know where they can go to find you and connect with you and your work. Um, so to find me personally, I'm on all major social media platforms um, at Eric D. Colette. So Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Um, so uh, LinkedIn, even if you want to reach out. And um, our website is amindforallseasons.com. And if you go to the website, right in the middle of the page, you'll see uh, that you can sign up for free for our weekly newsletter called The Mindful Brain. That's a new thing that we're offering. We're building a whole community of people all over the world who are really excited about optimizing their brain health. And there are reasons that they believe in being mindful. Um, F-U-L-L. There's kind of a play on words there where if your brain is optimized, then your mind is full and you're fully charged up. You're ready to roll. And I believe that it makes a difference for all of us because if your mind is full, you can perform your art. You can do the things that matter to you. To me, it's that I love to learn more than just about anything in life. And when my brain is optimized, I learn better and I retain it and I do a better job sharing it with other people. And so we would love to have you sign up and find out why you want to be mindful. What's your art? What matters to you? Why do you want to learn more about optimizing your brain? What does that do for you? That's an exciting conversation to have. And so we'd love to have as many people join us in our community as as are interested. Yeah, that's awesome. We will definitely link that in the show notes for sure. Again, I look forward to speaking with you tomorrow. Thank you so very much for all of your work and taking the time to come on our show today. Go Utes. And again, Eric, thank you so very much for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Oh, truly a pleasure. Thank you so much, Casey. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. 
as always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. I know I say this all the time, but I really do mean it. It has been such a joy to make and produce this podcast and to watch it grow. Our business started in the pandemic in July of 2020, and we started the podcast in October of 2020. So it has been three years now. And to see that we have generated over 400,000 downloads worldwide is just simply unbelievable to me. This year in particular has been such a blast to travel to different health conferences and not only meet some of our amazing guests, but also to meet many of you, our listeners and supporters. We really just can't thank you enough. As always, feel free to book a complimentary 30-minute session on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. On our homepage, there is a book now button where you can find a time to speak with us about health, fitness, nutrition, whatever you like. We've loved chatting with people all over the world and many of you out there to bounce ideas off each other or to try to come up with plans to achieve specific goals. Or even if it's just to reach out to introduce yourselves, we would just love to meet you and connect with you there. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel if you'd like to watch these full interviews and also the shorter interviews on more specific topics that are taken from these full interviews. We've gotten really good feedback over there. It's also a really fun way to interact with people who comment we read and reply to every single youtube comment we get so head on over there if you want to start a conversation and watch these um, videos as always if you haven't already please leave us a five-star rating and review on apple it really is the best way to make sure this podcast gets out there to more listeners we've been able to keep boundless body radio ad free for three years and really want to continue to do so and so your five-star ratings and reviews are the best way to support us at boundless body and support the podcast cheers thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.